Welcome to Book Bistro, where book enthusiasts come to chat about the books they love in a warm and supportive environment. is airing on Tuesday, February 21st, 2023. Hello, everyone. It's Shannon back with you for another Tuesday morning episode. Today, I have an author interview with debut novelist Roxana Arama, and we are talking about her book, Extreme Vetting, which was released in the U.S. on February 7th. After that, of course, I have a few new releases to chat with you about, so let's get started. You can find us on Facebook by searching for the Book Bistro podcast. Once there, you can post to our timeline. You can also message us privately. If you want a more social interaction, you can join our Facebook listener group, which is pretty quiet at the moment, though we are looking at some ways of possibly revamping it. If Facebook is not your thing and you still would like to hang out with us, check us out on our WhatsApp group. You can subscribe to that either by messaging us through Facebook or by sending us an email, and one of us will be happy to add you. If you're looking to get a hold of us via email, you can do that by contacting the Book Bistro Podcast at gmail.com. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another edition of the Book Bistro Podcast. This is Shannon. Today, I am joined by author Roxana Arama. And we are discussing her debut novel, Extreme Vetting, which is scheduled to be released here in the U.S. on February 7th. Roxana, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you for having me. Can we start out with a brief introduction to Extreme Vetting so that people can get a little bit of an idea what to expect if they haven't had a chance to read the blurb or take a look at any early reviews? Sure, thank you. Uh, so Extreme Vetting is a legal thriller that takes place in Seattle, Washington in 2019. It's a time capsule, not an evergreen thriller. Um, and the protagonist is an immigration lawyer who fights to keep her client from being deported to a country where his family was murdered many years ago. And then she finds out that the killers are coming here for both of them. So Laura Holban is a single mom and an immigrant herself. She's Romanian-American. And Emilio Ramirez is Laura's newest client from Guatemala. He is arrested at his son's high school and thrown in detention, awaiting deportation. And um, Emilio's son, David, who's a teenager, 16 years old, he, um, uh, he uh, convinces Laura to take uh, his father's case. So when Laura files for Emilio's asylum, all sorts of bad things start happening. False criminal charges prevent his release. Uh, someone is following his family. And then an ICE prosecutor th threatens to revoke Laura's U.S. citizenship, and which doesn't make, none of this makes a lot of sense. But then Laura would 
David's help, uncovers a deadly conspiracy involving that particular ICE prosecutor, stolen personal data, and human trafficking, uh, which puts her daughter and Emilio's sons in serious danger, uh, not to mention Laura and Emilio themselves. And so will they survive this? Yeah. So I am always on the lookout for a good legal thriller that feels compelling and kind of true to a lot of what is going on in society today. And so when I first read the blurb for Extreme Vetting, I thought, you know, okay, this is going to be something that I'm going to want to, you know, put pretty high on my TBR pile. So I am very, very excited for the world to read this. So I'm curious to know kind of what prompted you to tell this story? Like out of all the stories that there are in the world to tell, what made this particular story feel special to you and like something that you wanted to get out into the world? Um, so I started working on this story in October 2018. And the way I started working was kind of all, all at once. Um, a few, so I had a conversation with my, with my husband, uh, one evening, um, in 2018 about what it feels like to be an immigrant for me. And, um, my husband's, uh, an American born citizen. Um, and, um, what, what had happened is that a few months before I had watched the president of the United States at a rally, um, read a poem and, uh, and, in, in order to compare immigrants with uh, venomous snakes that should be crushed underfoot. Um, that- I remember seeing that on the news. I, yeah, I mean, this is a president who doesn't read really, but he had a poem <laughs> in his jacket <laughs> and he read the poem with big hand gestures. And um, when that happened, I had like a, this pivotal experience of dread and really feeling it in my bones, what it means to be dehumanized. Because I I did this, I'm a writer, so I did this um, uh, thought experiment, which I shouldn't have done, just imagining myself being seen by that crowd as, as, as something less than human that should, that deserves violence because I'm dangerous and I'm, I'm I don't know, add any other adjectives there. So I was like, in shock when I saw that clip, and he, the president uh, Trump had done this before in in his campaign, but I didn't watch it that closely. So he was already president when I saw that clip, and mm -hmm. then I, I I realized that he'd been he'd been doing that routine for a while, but I just hadn't seen it. So I so it was a very strange situation where I was like pretty much I kind of had this tunnel. Um, uh, sense that everything was collapsing in that moment because it's like, oh my God, I've seen this. I've learned about this in history. I know this happened throughout history to many groups of people, but like it just, it was just such a visceral reaction to realize that I was now the target, you know? And I I saw myself as a human, obviously, but I, yes. I, I could understand what it would be like for other people to not see me as, as, as human. And then, you know, dehumanizing is the first step toward violence. So I was like having all this, like, history wrapped into storytelling wrapped into oh my god this is not this is actually the president of the united states saying this about people like me so anyway i had like a big moment of shock so and it was funny because i i went after a few minutes i don't i don't know after a while i had to go downstairs to uh, prepare uh, lunch for my kids 
And so I kind of was in this trance almost, you know, like I was just con just uh, I was in shock. So I, I kind of walked downstairs and I walked right past my five year old at the time who was in the kitchen area with the with a book on the floor, a coloring book, I suppose. I don't know. And uh, she asked me something and I I just kind of turned toward her and I said, don't talk to me right now. Just leave me alone. You know, something like that. And then I marched to the refrigerator. I opened it and stared in the refrigerator, like unable to figure out, like, what am I doing? Because it felt like, like such a big blow, you know, to, to have that happen to me. And um, then after like a few seconds, I realized what I did. And I turned toward my daughter and she was still there exactly where I left her, but her big brown eyes were swimming in tears and her lower lip was trembling. And she was looking at me and I realized that I had not I don't think I had raised my voice uh, with her before. So she was now in shock, you know, so I just dropped on the floor with her and I was like, I, I'm so sorry. I apologize. And, you know, a five-year-old, I was explaining this in like simple words, like I'm so sad and angry because Trump compared me to a snake and that <laughs> hurt my feelings. And she's like, I understand. And to this day, she's like, sometimes she's like, hey, do you remember when Trump compared you to a snake and you yelled at me? <laughs> You know, so oh. it's part of the lore now in our family. But yeah, so when my husband, so in 2018, when I was talking to my husband about what it feels like to be an immigrant, and he's like, well, you know so much about this and you know what it so what it's like to be an immigrant, but you know what it feels like to be an immigrant. I was like, why don't you write a novel about this? And it was like, duh, you know, like that moment was like, of course, this is what I should be doing. And it's not even an option because... It, I felt like I needed to push back against that dehumanizing speech that had that was happening and that is still happening against immigrants in my in, in my country because I'm a citizen too. So I just started working on it like that night pretty much. I started envisioning the kernel. And then I started like, oh, I said, I, I need something. I need something that's that's entertaining. I can't have something that's melancholy and goes too slow because nobody's going to read that. I want something where people are just going to go with the story. But through the story, they're going to learn about what it's like to be an immigrant. So I was like, I need a I need an immigration thriller, you know, like I need that to be a thriller. So I need a lawyer and I need to, you know, so I just started and I have a friend who's an immigration lawyer. So I was like, the next day I was like, I need you to help me with this. And she's like, sure, I'll sit down with it and do interviews with you. And we did a bunch of interviews and, and then all through my writing and editing the manuscript, she was on, you know, like I could text her or call her. It's like, ah, uh, and ask her things like, who's who's handling this? The Department of Justice or the Department uh, Department of Homeland Security? And her answer would mostly be like, well, it depends. If you file it this way, it goes to this side. Ah, yes. Because so, it's it's crazy what's going on there. You know, it's like such an arcane thing. So, uh, yeah. So that's. I guess I went too uh, too long on this one, but that's how this book came to be. And it was it's a fictional thing; it's a plot that I created, but it's based on a lot of research, uh, uh, research and resources. Yeah. So, was there a part of the book that you found more difficult to write about than like some others? Like, was there something that kind of surprised you by how difficult it was? Yes. Uh, there were two scenes. I mean, there were there were there were parts that just kind of broke my heart. Like when I started thinking more about what it's what it feels like to be that character. But there were two scenes of violence that were very hard to write. Like for me, it's hard to write violence in my books. But when you write a book about immigration, 
you know, if you don't write, mm-hmm. if you don't put the violence in, then you're not doing doing uh, justice to your plot, and to, to the not to, to your plot as much as to the the reality of immigration. So y- people don't leave their home countries because they're just bored and just want to have fun somewhere, and you know, have the American taxpayer uh, taxpayer pay for that fun. You know, they they leave because they have to. And if you don't put the violence in the book, if you don't show what drives forced migration. Then you're not doing, or the, the you're not doing justice to the to this issue. So I had to write the violence in, and writing the violence was hard. I could not write those scenes like when I first started drafting them. I couldn't do them all in one and the same day. Uh-huh. I had to take deep breaths. I have I had to put it aside, come back, try to be steal myself, and then try to kind of just write the words almost mechanically without trying to live uh, the you know imaginary dream of being there which happens when i write i just kind of get in that state where i'm in there it was hard those were hard to write for me and then and then they were hard to edit over and over you know like how you edit so many times and it's like oh no i'm at the scene again oh no but i didn't want to i didn't want to make the scene easy for me so I let I, I, I let the scenes be as 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 hard as they were supposed to be. So, but that was hard for me to write. I would imagine so. I would think you know that writing violence, especially violence that sort of echoes what goes on in the real world and violence that affects real people every day, would be a really hard thing to to write about. Yeah. So did you always kind of want to be a writer or did this whole experience sort of open that up in you in a way that was a surprise? No, I, I, I've always wanted to write stories, but like when I was little, I didn't think I was allowed to. So I grew up in communist Romania and I thought as a child, I thought that only certain people are allowed to buy the party to write books, which was kind of the case at the uh, and that those days, and and then all the other writers that I knew were dead because they were from like the 19th century or something. So yes. it just didn't occur to me for a while that I could do this myself. But I really liked uh, literature, so I participated in national literature contests and you know critiquing you know works of literature and stuff, and that was a lot of fun for me. And then um, and then at some point it occurred to me. Um, that I might be able to do this myself. But I think um, actually while I while I lived in Romania, the closest I thought I'm allowed, to, I, I could get, not that I'm allowed, that I could realistically get to storytelling was to become a, a theater director. So I applied uh, uh, to a, a, for a program at the theater and, uh, and film academy at the time. And I got in, but I didn't, I didn't uh, complete that. Um, so, because then, and and uh, but I also was doing computers. I, I studied computer science uh, in Bucharest, and uh, with a major in artificial intelligence. And I um, and then I got a job in software development in the United States, and I left uh, Romania when I was just after college. And so then I came here, and all of a sudden everybody was talking about writing here, and this is pretty much where my light bulb went on. It's like, oh, so I don't actually need permission, but I don't know. I was just silly, so I started taking writing classes right away when I saw that those things are available, and then I just uh, 
started being a full-time writer like many years ago, just trying to put everything, all my energy into just writing. Yeah. So we are recording this just about a week ahead of your publication for Extreme Vetting. And so now that it's almost in the world, are there other stories that you want to tell or are you kind of glad that you've done this, but maybe you know, don't plan to do it again? I'm curious kind of what your, what your future plans might be. Are you asking about immigration thrillers in general, like another no, immigration just, thriller? With- just books in general. I mean, oh, I'm a, as- I'm a writer. Like I, that's all I do. Like I just, ah. completed, so I completed a, a historical fantasy oh. um, uh, based on the uh, ancient maps of Romania and Ukraine and based on the ancient people that, uh, peoples that lived on that territory during the Roman Empire, the, the Roman Empire. Um, and it's, it's also, it's, it's a, it's a historical fantasy that's based on the transition from secular communist secularism in Romania to Christian orthodoxy after the revolution of 1989. So the whole society kind of had this upheaval and it, it changed from one set of beliefs to another. And for me, that was fascinating. And I was like, I wanted to explore, um, the history of religion because I, uh, because of that living through that experiment, a social experiment, let's call it, uh, or social, I don't know uh, what that is, but it's its rare, you know, when a whole society just ups and uh, picks up a new religion, you know, and the religion existed and it was under the wraps in, in, uh, in uh, my country, but I couldn't see it as a child because we just didn't talk about it. And uh, my parents were secular too. And uh, so for me, it was a big surprise when the whole society turned like within six months. Now we had priests and um, all sorts of uh, religious um, um, rituals. And uh, for me, it was like, for instance, was a shock when I uh, returned to school uh, during after the winter break in uh, 1990, early January 1990. In, 20, in uh, December 1989, we had the popular uprising and our president and dictator Nikolai Ceausescu was killed on Christmas Day. So uh, when we kids came back to school, um, I was surprised that we didn't have the big painting of uh, Ceausescu on the wall, which had been there all all my life, you know, that there was no more painting on the wall. And you could see the discoloration in the paint because of, you know, the how it how it works when you take where it had been. Yeah, yeah. But it wasn't empty. Instead, now we had a little icon of Jesus, but I didn't know at the time who Jesus was. But my I remember looking at that wall, like as a seventh grader and thinking just this thought, like, why do we need another portrait up there? Why can the wall be empty? And so that was my thought. And then I actually lived through this whole upheaval of our society where we were now choosing something else to believe in. And I'm not arguing if it was good or bad. It's just the fact that we were switching this. And with it, we switched the history books. We switched the way we spoke. We switched the way we addressed. And for me, this huge change in society as a kid and in seventh grade, it was it was fascinating. It just pretty much marked my life. So pretty much after that, I wanted to understand the history of religion. So I studied all that. So then I create, I wrote this historical fantasy about a princess who gets exiled and who, when she goes to a new country, she changes the religion of that country. And then I realized that, oh, I'm actually writing this archetype of the immigrant who uh, travels to a new country and affects, changes the culture of her adoptive adoptive country too. So that's another sort of immigration story. And right now I'm working on a sci-fi, which is an immigration thriller again, but it's a sci-fi thriller. 
And it's uh, it, it, the main idea is that uh, we have uh, that, that artificial general intelligence uh, is created on Earth, but these new created androids cannot secure the same basic human rights as these humans that live on this planet. And the question is, where can they find home? You know, so it's another immigration story that talks about where people that that uh, the beings that are born in a place where they cannot live. And uh, this is so it's another immigration story, but this time is with androids and spaceships. So there, uh, that's what I'm working on. I love that you're able to tie these really timely issues into stories that aren't limited to a single genre. Like you're able to take these themes and kind of weave them into, like you said, sci-fi and fantasy. And I think so often people get stuck in thinking like, if I want to write about immigration, I can only do it in this one particular way. Right, right. Yeah. So I'm going to switch gears a little bit and ask you about your reading. So what kind of things do you enjoy reading? Okay. I will be, um, so again, this is going to sound like all over the place, but I do love science. As I said, I graduated in computer science. I, I love science and I like I love history those two things. So I love reading a lot of nonfiction books, but I also love reading fiction in the genre I'm working on currently to help me think about my writing, to give me ideas of how to do a better job in my writing. So I usually read a combination of those, whatever, um, whatever happens to in the moment to work, um, to, to help me for my work. So if it's research and I need to read a non nonfiction books, I do that. If it's like I, I completed my research phase and now I just want to read as many sci-fis as possible because now I'm working on a sci-fi. So I'm reading Project Hail Mary right now by Andy Weir. Um, because, you know, like I want to see how he blends the, sci the science with the storytelling. Um, I just do that. So I, but I don't have like a one thing that I, I usually read. I, I just read whatever works for me in the moment. Does that make sense? It absolutely makes sense. I think yeah. that's how a lot of people read. I mean, obviously everybody has kind of their, their genre that brings them comfort, but I think there are a ton of people who read just sort of whatever inspires them in the moment. Yeah. And uh, I just, I, I'm kind of like a flypaper, uh, you know, like whatever sticks to me in the moment, like if I'm interested in this and I, somebody happens to recommend a book about in that direction, I just, I just try to put it on my list. Now I do have a big stack of books uh, by my nightstand that um, there were in the moment I was like, I need to read this, but then another one was put on top and another one was put on top. So oh, I yes. still have like so many to go through, but uh, yeah, I, I just, I collect books that I want to read and of course I always I just have so many that I haven't gotten to unfortunately because I only have 24 hours in a day so what have you read recently that you think the world should know about okay something that uh really moved me was Daughters of Smoke and Fire by Ava Homa I didn't know that much about the situation of the Kurdish stateless Kurds who are have, who live on the territory of like four other nations that treat them really poorly. And uh, this is was a story about um, um, a, a woman who wants to be um, a filmmaker and to document some of her um, people's 
you know, hardships. And uh, she has a brother who's actually based on a, on the, on, on the, a real, a real teacher who, who lived in Iran and who was executed for uh, talking about um, the Kurdish situation. And it's, it's not a thriller, but it just moved me so much, so much. And it taught me something. I mean, I, I, I tried to be, to stay educated about the world because as an immigrant, I, I already like, I have my big, big cultural background from Europe. And then I have America as my home um, um, here. And um, then, then the whole continent, American continent from North to South is, I feel like it's my neighborhood. So I have to understand, but I, I, and then because of all the wars that America was involved in, I tried to educate myself about the Middle East, but I just didn't know that much about the Kurdish situation, although, you know, you hear on the news, but like, it was kind of fragmented. And this book just brought it all together for me. And I was just like, this is how, this is just terrible what's happening. Like, how can a nation be a, 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 a whole group of people again? And I don't know, I think, I don't want to say the wrong number, but I think there are 40 million or I don't know how many, but it's, it's like pretty much I had the sense that this isn't, the Kurds are more than the Romanians, you know, and they're just divided between nations and they're treated really poorly. And Iran just execute, executes Kurdish dissidents all the time. It's just an awful situation. So that ended, oh, 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 and the book was written in such a beautiful language too. It was just, so I, I really recommend this, Daughters of Smoke and Fire by Ava Homa. And then I read a bunch of other immigrant books, just, you know, kind of in the, while I was doing my, my own research. So, um, uh, I really liked the other Americans by Lila Lalami. Oh yes. And then I read, uh, Miracle Creek by Angie Kim was fun. Miracle Creek. It was really yes. cool. Yeah. So, so I hope she writes another one. I haven't seen anything else from her, but I really hope she writes something else. Right. Right. So, yeah. And I, I do have more, but I will just, yeah. Well, I want to thank you so much for taking time out of your schedule so close to publication to chat with me and let listeners know a little bit about who you are as a person and a writer. Before I let you dash off, can you let listeners know the best place to find you online? Yeah, so my website is uh, just my name, roxanarama.com, R-O-X-A-N-A-A-R-A-M-A.com, Roxana's with just one N. So roxanarama.com, where readers can find links to buy, where they can buy my book from major online retailers. Though They can also buy extreme vetting at their local bookstore too. And I also uh, partnered with uh, Madison Books uh, to provide signed copies if, if people want to order them uh, through my website. Um, and I want to say that Madison Books, uh, my local bookstore, is... Uh, a finalist is one of the five finalists in 2022 for Publishers Weekly Bookstore of the Year Award. And um, I am very, very honored that they are carrying my book and um, uh, helping me reach readers. And on my website, I also have a sign up for my newsletter, just in, in case anybody wants to keep in touch with me. Perfect. And will extreme vetting be available in audio? This is what uh, my my publishers said. We, I, I think on on publication date, but unless there's a little glitch there of a few days, but that's that's the goal. Yes, uh, audio and ebook, too, Yay. as well. Yeah, perfect. Again, this has been a discussion with debut author Roxana Arama 
about her novel, Extreme Vetting, which is scheduled for release here in the U.S. on February 7th. All right, so new releases. There are some great things coming out today. I'm super excited to share with you. So let's start, as always, with some things that you've heard us mention previously. First off, Sarah is looking forward to Things We Hide from the Light. This is Knock 'em Out, book two by Lucy Score. I am super excited for the new Rebecca Mackay, which is called I Have Some Questions for You. Robin is looking forward to the brand new Walter Mosley novel. This is Every Man a King. It's a King Oliver novel, book two. And Georgina is looking forward to It's One of Us by J.T. Ellison. So those are books that you've heard us mention previously. Let's talk now about some things that we haven't talked about before. So Kelly Armstrong has a new book out this week, which is always something we're excited about here on Book Bistro. This is Murder at Haven's Rock. Haven's Rock, book one. This is a spinoff to her Rockton series. So if you aren't familiar with Casey Duncan and the town of Rockton, you might want to go back to the beginning and read City of the Lost, which starts her Rockton series. Um, otherwise, I'm not sure how much background you're going to get if you start right here with Haven's Rock. So this is Murder at Haven's Rock. Haven's Rock, book one by Kelly Armstrong. We also have The Writing Retreat. This is by Julia Bartz, and it is about a retreat for writers that turns into a nightmare for one author. Once again, this is The Writing Retreat by Julia Bartz. Let's talk now about some historical fiction. The Woman with the Cure by Lynn Cullen is out this week. This is about a woman who was instrumental in helping to stop the spread of polio. I don't know a ton about polio, but I'm always interested in pandemic books. So this is one that I will be checking out. It's The Woman with the Cure by Lynn Cullen. We also have The Porcelain Moon by Janie Chang. She wrote The Library of Legends a few years ago. And like that one, this is set during World War II. There are so many World War II books out these days. And yet I feel like we are almost always learning something new about that period in history. So I'm always here for another good World War II novel. And this one is The Porcelain Moon by Jamie Chang. Keeping with this theme of World War II, I want to talk about The Librarian of Burned Books by Brianna Lebuskis. This is kind of interesting because this author has written thrillers, mystery thrillers before. And this is a historical novel about three women who believe in the power of books and what they did to preserve them during World War II. So this is Librarian of Burned Books by Brianna Lebuskis. 
I want to talk about some romance now because romance is always a thing to talk about here. Best Served Hot. This is by Amanda Elliott. It is her second novel, another food-themed book, this time about restaurant reviewers. If you love foodie romances, then you may be familiar with Elliott's first book, which was Sadie on a Plate. And now this one is Best Served Hot by Amanda Elliott. We also have some historical romance. This is the Counterfeit Scoundrel, Masters of Seduction, book one by Lorraine Heath. This is an author who pretty consistently writes very charming, very readable historical romances. I especially love when she focuses on parts of history that don't just involve aristocrats. Um, she has written some really good British historicals. Back in the day, she wrote some American historicals, which will probably be among my favorites for a long time to come. But this is a new series, and it does look to be set in Britain. This is The Counterfeit Scoundrel, Masters of Seduction, Book One, by Lorraine Heath. Artfully Yours by Joanna Lowell is out this week. This is Lowell's third novel, I believe. Third? Yeah. Um, she Her debut was The Duke Undone a couple of years ago, which Stacy mentioned on the podcast um, when we did our historical romance episode not too long ago. And then she also wrote a book called The Runaway Duchess. But this one doesn't seem to be connected to the previous two. It has to do with art forgers, which, which makes me very, very excited. Um, this is Artfully Yours, and it's by Joanna Lowell. Stacy and Sarah will be very happy about this next book that I'm about to mention. This is The Dom Who Came In From the Cold, Masters and Mercenaries Reloaded, book five by Lexi Blake. I am familiar with Lexi Blake as an author who writes romantic suspense alongside Shayla Black, but she writes quite a bit more than that as well. Um, she writes contemporary, just straight up contemporary romance. She writes some erotic romance. And Stacey and Sarah devoured her Masters in Mercenary series last year. And this is still something that they talk about periodically um, on the podcast. So I am at some point planning to give this series a try, but this is a spinoff from the original, this Masters and Mercenaries Reloaded series. So this is the latest installment in that spinoff, and it is the Dom Who Came In From the Cold, Masters and Mercenaries Reloaded, book five by Lexi Blake. We also have Harmony of Lies, this is Alice and Owen, book two, by Brian Fian. If this author's name sounds familiar to you, he is the son of romance powerhouse Christine Fian, and he has written a paranormal romance series of his own. This is the second book in that series, and it is Harmony of Lies. This is Alice and Owen, book two, by Brian Fian. And last up for me today is a book that doesn't really fit neatly into any of the categories that I've 
mentioned here. It's not a mystery. It's not romance. It's not historical. Um, it's just kind of a general fiction book, but it is one that is on my list of things to read. This is When the Moon Turns Blue by Pamela Terry. This author came onto my radar a couple of years ago when she released The Sweet Taste of Muscadines, which talks about dessert wine. Um, but this one has a totally different feel. It is about a woman in a small Georgia town who finds her life rocked by conflict. And apparently this conflict affects her in some very, very personal ways and could cause her to lose everything. So this is When the Moon Turns Blue, and it's by Pamela Terry. And those are the new releases I have for you this week. I hope everyone is doing well, staying safe, and hopefully if you are in the path of a winter storm that is said um, to be sweeping its way across the United States in the next couple of days, I hope you all stay safe, warm, well, and of course, well-read. If you would like to leave us a rating or a review, you can do that on Apple Podcasts or any other platform that you use to access the show. Not only does it tell us what you think, but it also helps other people find us when they're looking for book-related podcasts. Um, it kind of advances us in the Google algorithm. So I will be back next Tuesday morning with an author interview and, of course, the guide to new releases. And some number of us will be back on Friday with more bookish greatness. Take care, everybody. Mm-hmm.